Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Given a weapon that is like a sword, a short sword, 
And the Bible calls it the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, let me explain to you how critical it is that we get this right. Let's talk about the explanation of the sword of the spirit. There are two words in the language in which the New Testament was written, the Greek language. There are two words that are translated by our English word, word, W-O-R-D. Those two words from the Greek language are, first of all, the word logos. Most of us have heard that word along the way. If you live in some kind of spiritual environment, someone's going to use that word to name a Sunday school class or a software program or something. The word logos is the word that is used in John chapter 1, verse 1, where we're told, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That, as you know, is speaking about Jesus Christ, who is God's last word to man. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is God's word to us, so that we won't miss the message. That word, logos, is also used to describe this book, the Bible, Over in Hebrews, we're told that we are to honor those who speak to us the word of God. There he's talking about the scripture. So the word logos, primarily for us today, means this book, the Bible, from cover to cover. The totality of God's message to us in the Bible is the logos. But it's interesting when you read Ephesians chapter 6 that that is not the word that is used. Paul does not write to the Ephesians and say, and take unto yourselves the sword of the Spirit, which is the logos of God. He doesn't use that word. He uses the other word that is translated by this word, word. And that Greek word is a word we would pronounce like this, rhema, R-H-E-M-A, rhema. Say that word with me, rhema. Now you've said a Greek word in church, and everything's going to be better from now on. Rhema. The word rhema does not mean the totality of the Bible. The word rhema is translated in the most accurate way by the term the sayings of God. So the rhema of God means the sayings of God. It is not the whole book. It is the individual sayings of God that are in the book. Paul says to the Ephesians, take unto yourselves the whole armor of God and especially take the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God. In a real sense, this book is an armory full of swords. The whole Bible is full of swords, the sayings of God. So in order for us to be effective, we need to know the difference between those two words. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, that they were to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God. He was not saying, take hold of the Bible. He was saying, take hold of the sayings which are in the Bible. The Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons. It's a laboratory of infallible medicines. It's a mine of exhaustless wealth. It's a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, a bomb for every wound. It is the armory in which you find the swords of the Spirit. So the Bible then becomes a double blessing because here you have everything that God has ever said that he wants us to know. And in this book, you have specific sayings of God that he's given to us for specific situations we may face. And using the sword of the Spirit, the short sword, we're to know the Word of God so that we can use it carefully. So that's the explanation of the sword of the Spirit. Now notice the emphasis of it. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Here's another passage that's militant about God's Word. Here's a passage that tells us that the Bible and the content of the Bible is living. It's energetic. It's powerful. It's able to do what no one can comprehend it's capable of doing. It is not possible for the enemy to stand against the dreaded weapon of God's Word. And a material sword, one that you would use in a physical battle, 
pierces the body, but the spiritual sword pierces the heart. A material sword gets duller as you use it, but a spiritual sword gets sharper every time you use it. A physical sword requires the hand of the soldier, but the Word of God doesn't require anything, just the sword itself. So here's the difference. God has given us this specific weapon to be used in hand-to-hand combat with the enemy, and the Bible says that those swords are found within the covers of this book. Individually, we discover them. Now, I want to give you, thirdly, the example of how this works. If you were to appeal to someone to show you how the sword works, you would certainly at least begin to think about maybe whoever designed the sword could tell you how it works. Well, I want you to know that the designer of the sword of the Spirit was Jesus Christ himself, and over in Matthew chapter 4, we have an illustration of how he used the sword of the Spirit against the enemy who came to tempt him. Matthew chapter 4 is a very interesting chapter. The first 11 verses of the fourth chapter tell us about Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 3 gives us the account of Jesus' baptism. Now, watch carefully and hold these two thoughts together. Matthew chapter 3, God in heaven validates Jesus Christ as his son. Remember he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 4, Satan tries to disabuse Jesus of that title. He tries to challenge him at the very core of his sonship. He comes at him with everything he has to try to prove that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, well-pleasing to the Father. Now, Satan is going to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, by the way, If you'll read it carefully, you'll know that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So it was the will of God for Jesus to be tempted. Have you ever wondered why? I think I understand that now. I think God wanted us to see how that works. He wanted us to see Jesus under fire. He wanted us to see what happens when a swordsman uses the sword of the Spirit in the right way against the enemy. So here we have Jesus at the bidding of the Spirit of God taken into the wilderness where Satan is going to tempt him. Now, let me express to you how important it is to know that Satan doesn't have very much of a strategy, but he has a very powerful one. He only has three strategies that he uses. He's used them every time he's ever tempted anybody. He's used them on you and on me, and here they are. They're the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He began his temptation career back in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Eve. Remember, he came to Eve, and he said to Eve that the fruit was good for food, the lust of the flesh. And it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And it was able to make one wise, the pride of life. The same temptation that Satan used on Eve, he is going to use on Jesus. Now, Eve succumbed. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, Jesus does not. (laughs) But the temptations are the same. Watch carefully. First of all, he tempts Jesus with the lust of the flesh. Matthew 4, 1 through 3, we read these words. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness specifically so that he could be tempted. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, where did he get that? Because God the Father had just said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan was listening into the conversation. And he said, If you really are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now the first temptation is Satan saying to Jesus, Satisfy your hunger by turning these stones into bread. Remember, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. If you've ever fasted, you know you can get pretty hungry. And Satan is saying to Jesus, just do a little miracle. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, why are you hungry? Satan is tempting Jesus to use his divine power to meet a human need. 
He was trying to get Jesus to act independently of the Father. He was trying to play on the human hunger of Jesus to get him to use his divine power to satisfy his own need to do a miracle for himself. How many of you know Jesus never did a miracle for himself? We're told that when he was on the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels, thousands of angels, but he never did. He never used a miracle for himself. He came to serve others, not to be served. And if he had responded to Satan's temptation, he would have ceased to be the Son of God because he would have acted independently and not under the Father's direction. He would have done something without the Father's permission. Remember, the Bible says he came only to do the Father's will. He came to live under the Father's direction. If he had used the opportunity to take those stones that were on the ground there in the wilderness that probably looked like little Hebrew loaves of bread and said some words over them and turned them into bread, he would have no longer have been the Messiah. He would have disqualified himself to be our Savior. It would have been over. But Jesus didn't succumb because he knew about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So you read in verse 4 what happened. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't argue with him. He didn't discuss it with him. He didn't say, I don't think you should do that. No, he just reached into his armory, and he pulled out the right sword, and he used that sword against Satan. He said, it is written, Satan. Take this. And what Jesus said was simply, listen, Satan, God keeps people alive, not bread. How do you think bread came about in the first place? God is the one who is responsible for that. And God can bring nourishment to me, and he doesn't even need bread to do it. <laughs> Jesus was telling Satan, I will not act independently of the Father. No. First round is over, and Jesus wins. How many of you wish Satan would quit after round one? <laughs> he doesn't ever do that, does he? In fact, he will take what he learned in round one and try to use it against you in round two. And he does exactly that with Jesus. Here is test number two. The first one is the lust of the flesh. The second is the lust of the eyes. Verse five, the devil took Jesus up into a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, now where did he get that? God the Father had just said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan says, if you really are the Son of God, as your Father says you are, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. The devil wanted Christ to set himself up as a wonder worker, to put on a show but the Lord had the perfect sword already, and once again he reached into his armory that he was carrying with him, and he pulled out sword number two, and he said, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Temptation number one is the lust of the flesh. Temptation number two is the lust of the eyes. And here's the third one, the pride of life. Matthew 4, 8. Again, third time, the devil takes Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and he says to him, Jesus, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Well, you say, does Satan have the right to make such an offer? Yes, he's the prince of this world, isn't he? He's on a leash during this period of time, but he's the prince of the power of the air. Satan is loose on this earth. If he wasn't, we wouldn't have such a hard time. He's, he's kind of the prince of this world right now. And he, he's offering Jesus the opportunity to take this kingdom and to take it now. Now, he's appealing to the personal ambition of Jesus, the pride of life. Satan, from the very beginning, was trying to do everything he could to keep Jesus from going to the cross because when Jesus went to the cross, Satan was done. The sentence hasn't been totally carried out, but it has been passed, and Satan's finished. And it was the cross that did it. And Satan did everything in his whole career to keep Jesus from being born, to keep him from going to the cross. Here was another attempt on the enemy's part. If you could just keep Jesus from going to the cross, Satan wins. And once again, Jesus reached into a sheath of swords and he said, Satan, it is written. 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Match over. Jesus wins three to zero. And notice what it says. And the devil left him. Oh, hallelujah. The devil left him. Oh, those are the happiest words you ever hear. And the devil left him. And the Bible says when the devil left him, the angels came and ministered to him. You remember James in his book in the New Testament, he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Jesus resisted the devil with the word of God, and the Bible says the devil left him. Do you see how you use the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, just like Jesus did? When Satan comes with a temptation, you need to have a word, one of the sayings. These were sayings from the Bible. Jesus chose a saying, and he used it against the enemy. We'll have more to say about that in just a moment. So we've looked at the explanation of the sword and the emphasis of it and the example of it. Now, I want to just talk for a couple more minutes about the effect of it. What is the effect of the sword of the Spirit? Three things. First of all, this explains the dynamic of preaching. The Bible says that people are saved by the foolishness of preaching. And it really, when you stop and think about it, doesn't it seem kind of strange that you can come to a place or, or maybe go to a stadium where Billy Graham is going to speak, and this man can stand up, and you may not even be able to see him, and he's going to speak from the Word of God, and he's going to say some things in that stadium, and you're going to respond to them, and when you respond, it changes your life. I want to tell you something. If I were a Christian out of fellowship with God, or I were not a Christian, and I was going to a Bible-preaching church, I might sit as far back as I could, and I've often thought about putting a sign over the front of this that says, Hazardous. Because, you see, what I do when I preach is I stand up here and I fling swords. That's all I do. I throw swords out from the Bible. I preach the Word of God, and the sayings of God just get thrown everywhere. And they're bound to hit you sometime. And usually, when you're listening carefully, if you're taking notes and trying to ask God to help you understand it, the sword will come at a point in your life where you really need it or where you really need it and don't want it. <laughs> and the sword will do its work in your life. Number two, this truth teaches us the important discipline of reading the Bible through systematically. First of all, that explains the dynamic of preaching, and then it encouraged the discipline of reading the Bible. And I can explain this to you very quickly. Jesus used three swords against Satan that day in the wilderness. Do you know where they came from? Well, you probably think, well, they probably are from the Psalms or some prominent portion of the Word of God. No, no, no. All three of his swords came from the book of Deuteronomy. You've got to be kidding me. From Deuteronomy? Jesus used all of his swords against Satan from the book of Deuteronomy? Oh, yes, there are swords in Deuteronomy. <laughs> this book is the armory. This is the Logos. And in the Logos are hundreds of thousands of rhema, sayings of God, and when you find those sayings and you put them together with the temptation in your life, you can do what Jesus did. You can say, it is written, <laughs> and nail him with a sword. Thirdly, this truth teaches us the dynamic of preaching and the discipline of reading the Bible systematically. And thirdly, it teaches us the diligence of memorizing passages of the Word of God. I know that most of you don't like the word memorize. I think about the 10th grade or so, <coughs> memorize goes out of our vocabulary. why that is. Somebody tells us it's not a good educational method. I don't necessarily agree with that. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. When Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan came to tempt him, Jesus didn't say, can you wait just a minute while I go get my concordance? You know? You don't get to do that, do you? I found that when the temptation comes to me, it's rarely when I'm sitting in my office with my Bible open and I'm studying for a sermon. It never happens that way. Your temptations come normally in a situation where you would be ill-prepared if you didn't have some of the Word of God stored in your mind. If you're going to be a Christian, you've got to be a soldier. And if you're going to be a soldier, you need more than just armor to keep you from getting hit. You need to learn how to use the weapon God has given you. And the only weapon there is, I mean, I wish I could tell you there's ten others, but there's just one. It's this book. That's why we concentrate on it here. That's why it's just every week the message from this pulpit. Because if you get this book and you begin to use it in a proper way and learn how to use the sayings of God, 
there is no way you will be victimized. You will be victorious. You will be able to say with the authority of the Lord Jesus, it is written. It is written. As I read the four Gospels and the book of Acts in the New Testament, I'm always challenged by how Christ and his apostles used the sword of the Spirit, how they were able to quote from the Old Testament from memory. To have ready access to the Word of God might mean the difference between spiritual victory or spiritual defeat. Knowing the Word of God begins with faith in the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, and continues with studying and memorizing and meditating on the written Word. Turning Point has two free resources to help you accomplish both. First, a booklet called Your Greatest Turning Point, and then our monthly devotional magazine called Turning Points. We will gladly send both to you free of charge if you will contact us here at Turning Point today. Spiritual warfare is real. It is daily and it is personal. Arm yourself for spiritual battle with answers to questions about spiritual warfare by Dr. David Jeremiah. From his decades of teaching on this important topic, Dr. Jeremiah provides more than 70 answers to critically important questions concerning conflict in the spiritual realm. This book is a weapon of mass instruction, and it will help you develop strategies for victory in spiritual battles, find solutions to overcome Satan's schemes, identify battle strategies of the unseen world, put on the full armor of God, and effectively use the sword of the Spirit. Order your copy when you support this program with a gift of any amount. Let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long. rarely find a message now on repentance. Look at what has become of the world, Church of Christ, through you, losing what you should have been. But God waits for his people. God waits for his people. When will they take the stepping stones God has placed in his word? Church that has forgotten its foundations, a church that's turned away from its beginnings and begins to become a harlot church. Just, just tell me how blessed I am. Just tell me I'm, I'm, I'm going to be powerful and popular and going to have no trouble in my life. Just tell me these things. Watered down. Half-truths. This gospel says, just believe and get saved. There's nothing of repentance, nothing of godly sorrow, nothing of turning from your sins, nothing about taking up your cross and following the Lord. But people who say a little prayer said, you're fine, you're good. People believe in any standard, even if the New Testament is legalism and bondage and law. Any standard is law. I'm in the grace, I can do anything. Oh, that's from the devil. Now, we've revised that and said, if you can meet people for one hour on Sunday morning in the building, that's the church. That's not the church. We can use every device we want to get people for one hour and keep it early and keep it moving and keep it going. But that's not the church Jesus does. And I'm embarrassed to be part of the church of Jesus today because I believe it's an embarrassment to a holy God. Most of our joy is clapping our hands and having a good time, and then afterwards we're talking all the drivel of the world. Don't talk to us about holiness or separation from the world. Don't, we don't want to hear that. Most people today don't want to hear anything they call gloom and doom. If, if it's not smooth, it's gloom and doom. Well, Fred, let me tell you lovingly, go to hell and live with all the scum of the earth. You like to drink, go with the drinkers. You like to lust, go with the prostitutes. They've been covered in something deceptive to find 
in the last moments of your life that the feet coming down the hallway are not taking you to heaven. You can get through the deception your whole life. You can even sing in the choir. And I think we'd better watch this business of, you know, God loves you, God loves you, and all the bumper sticker sloppy evangelism. Will you remind people of the goodness and the severity of God? Will you remind them that there's a day when mercy is cut off forever? Will you remind them that people pray in hell but nobody ever answers? But in spite of what God has spoken, they create a garment of fig leaves and they cover themselves and say, all is well, all is well. And they seek out a church that won't challenge their sin, that won't expose this hypocrisy for what it is. I'd rather you get mad at me and go to heaven. This so-called love gospel today only reaches the flesh. It can't get to the heart. It can't peek into sin so that there can be a cleansing. And if I'm a surgeon of the Holy Ghost, I'm not going to put a bandage on you when you've got cancer sticking out of a bone or, or on your flesh. We're going to say, hey, we got to get in there. It has to be dealt with. And we do. I don't care if you like me, but I'm a good surgeon, and I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to get your cancer out. This is the reason why some who are listening even now and will be listening to tapes in the future, you just can't lighten up and enjoy these theologically shallow experiences like so many around you are today. Everyone around you saying, oh, lighten up, lighten up. God's love, God's good, God's kind, God is nice. Come to church in your Bermuda church. Stick your feet in the altar rail. Have a coffee and cookies with us. We'll hear three-point messages on nothing about God. But there's a stirring in you. There's a stirring in the true bride in this generation. Now, I'm going to tell you something. A diluted gospel is no gospel at all. Businessmen. They were crass businessmen coming into something that God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. You're getting over on the people. Out with you. And if you don't believe this is happening in our generation, I challenge you to go to a Christian bookstore this week and Find the bestsellers. Ask them which are the bestsellers. And look at them. Look at the covers of the images of men, not the images of God. Five steps to be like me. Five steps to better yourself. Five steps to the new you. Five steps to a wonderful destiny with their glossy faces on the cover. Not so subtly telling the Church of Jesus Christ, if you use the principles of God, you will look like me. In the 14th chapter of Romans, and he says, we, so he writes, even to believers at the judgment seat. We must all, there's no exception. We must stand at the judgment seat of Christ. You can't send your lawyer, you can't send a representative. Because one day, it doesn't matter if your friends approve of you, it doesn't matter how many albums you sell, one day the Bible says, I'm going to stand in front of the one whose eyes are like fire, and I can't get over on him. All of you that sing in that choir, it's not just if you're on your note, it's why you're on your note. Can you see all the saints of all the ages, and Leonard Raymond is standing there before a Christ, whose eyes are full of holiness, where the place is breathing holiness, where there's all the majesty of an awesome God? And he reads the record of my poor life before all the saints of all the ages. Unto God, all you theologians reading out my theology. Just unto God, are you pure in heart? And you became enamored with your own beauty. And your whole
The whole world is shaking. And you're using this people. Even if you have to bury your theology, just bury it tonight and get back to God.
The apostate church of the last day is not going to accept this message of repentance, whether I preach it or any, any other man that God preaches it. It's not going to be accepted by the masses. It's going to be accepted only by a holy, separated view. Isaiah 30, verse 15. Well, thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel has said, What? In repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust, in quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing and you said no. Not willing. And you said no. Oh, brother, sister, listen to me. The message of the Holy Ghost of this last day church is that in repentance and rest is your only hope. The only hope left for the church is to return to him with all their heart and to get out of Egypt and the world. Try to tell that to the modern, huge, multi-million dollar television ministries today. That's the only hope Tell that to the money man crowds. Tell, tell this senseless, prosperous, self-induced, self-centered generation of Christians. Tell them that they're only offers and repentance. Tell them that. See how many listen. You will rarely find a message now on repentance. Look at what has become of the world, Church of Christ, through you, losing what you should have been. But God waits for his people. God waits for his people. When will they take the stepping stones God has placed in his word? Church that has forgotten its foundations, a church that's turned away from its beginnings and begins to become a harlot church. Just, just tell me how blessed I am. Just tell me I'm, I'm, I'm going to be powerful and popular and going to have no trouble in my life. But just tell me these things. Water down. Half-truths. This gospel says, disbelieve and get saved. There's nothing of repentance, nothing of godly sorrow, nothing of turning from your sins, nothing about taking up your cross and following the Lord. But people who say a little prayer said, you're fine, you're good. People believe in any Sabbath against the New Testament and legalism and bondage and law. Any Sabbath is law. I'm in the grace, I can do anything. Oh, that's from the devil. Now, we've revised that and said, if you can get people for one hour on Sunday morning in the building, that's the church. That's not the church. We can use every device we want to get people for one hour and keep it early and keep it moving and keep it going. But that's how the church Jesus And that is us to be part of the church of Jesus today because I believe it's an embarrassment to our holy God. Most of our joy is clapping our hands and having a good time. And then afterwards, we're talking all the dribble of the world. Don't talk to us about holiness or separation from the world. Don't, we don't want to hear that folks. People today don't want to hear anything they call gloom and doom. If, if it's not smooth, it's gloom and doom. Well, Frank, let me tell you lovingly, go to hell and live with all the skill of the earth. You like to drink, go with the drinkers. You like to let's go with the prostitutes. To have been covered in something deceptive to find in the last moments of your life, that the feet coming down the hallway are not taking you to heaven. You can get through the deception your whole life. You can even sing in the choir. And I think we've got to watch this business of, you know, God loves you and God loves you, and all the bungles think of sloppy evangelism. Will you remind people of the goodness and the severity of God? Will you remind them that there's a day when mercy is cut off forever? Will you remind them that people pray in hell but nobody ever answers? But in spite of what God has spoken, they create a garment of fig leaves and they cover themselves and say, all is well, all is well. And they seek out a church that won't challenge their sin, that won't expose their hypocrisy for what it is. I'd rather you get mad at me and go to heaven. This 
so-called love gospel today only reaches the flesh. It can't get to the heart. It can't deep into sin so that there can be a cleansing. And if I'm a surgeon of the Holy Ghost, I'm not going to put a bandage on you when you've got cancer sticking out of a bone or, or on your flesh. We're going to say, hey, we've got to get in there. It has to be dealt with. And we do. I don't care if you like me, but I'm a good surgeon, and I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to get your cancer out. This is the reason why some who are listening even now and will be listening to tapes in the future, you just can't lighten up and enjoy these theologically shallow experiences like so many around you are today. Everyone around you saying, oh, lighten up, lighten up. God's love, God's good, God's kind, God is nice. Come to church in your Bermuda church, stick your feet in the altar rail, have a coffee and cookies with us. We'll hear three point messages on nothing about God. But there's a stirring in you. There's a stirring in the true bride in this generation. And I'm going to tell you something. A diluted gospel is no gospel at all. Businessmen. They were craft businessmen coming into something that God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. You're getting over on the people. Out with you. And if you don't believe this is happening in our generation, I challenge you to go to a Christian bookstore this week and Find the bestsellers. Ask them which are the bestsellers. And look at them. Look at the covers of the images of men, not the images of God. Five steps to be like me. Five steps to better yourself. Five steps to, to new you. Five steps to a wonderful destiny with their glossy faces on the cover. Not so subtly telling the Church of Jesus Christ, if you use the principles of God, you will look like me. In the 14th chapter of Romans, and he says, we, so he writes home, even to believers at the judgment seat. We must all, there's no exemption. We must stand at the judgment seat of Christ. You can't send your lawyers, you can't send your representatives. Because one day, it doesn't matter if your friends approve of you, it doesn't matter how many albums you sell, one day the Bible says, I'm going to stand in front of the one whose eyes are like fire, and I can't get over on him. All of you that sing in that choir, it's not just if you're on your note, it's why you're on your note. Can you see all the saints of all the ages, and live in great standing there before Christ, whose eyes are full of holiness, where the praise is breathing holiness, where the door of majesty and the laws of God? And he reads the record of my poor life before all the saints of all the ages. Then to God, there you see a little bit reading out my theology. To God, to God, are you pure in heart? And you became enamored with your own beauty. And your whole theological focus now is how you can be smarter, better, better looking, more prosperous. You lost the call of God, church. You made it a place just to make a buck. So come with you. Church of Christ with God, when will you grieve more of the thirst of the righteousness? And I'm going to tell you something. A diluted gospel is no gospel at all. The community with the church is the state we are, the standards must preach and live. They're presented. We need to see God back with the standard of this book, not men's standards, but Christ's standards. I'm not presenting to you some holiness of the holiness movement. I'm teaching you Christ's word that the only holiness is not heresy. you with everything in me. Put away lifeless religion. Put away empty pursuits of God. Put away all of the deception of the carnal nature. Holy, be ye holy, for I am holy. But God moves. Let my wounded Protestant, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal pastors began to stand up and see what's happening to the church. There was what's called the Church of Jesus Christ. Backsliding, turning apostate, turning against the truths of their heaven, of their their founding fathers. When I see the church in the New Testament, they didn't have stately buildings. They didn't have paid evangelists. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have organization. They just couldn't get on TV and beg. But I'll tell you what they did. They turned the world upside down. But how are you big enough to say, Lord, in this crucial hour in human history, let me fill up the sufferings of Christ. But if the Holy Spirit is truly, truly upon you in this generation, you will not be satisfied. You will not be found among those who sit in supposed houses of God with your feet on the altar rail and a cup of coffee in your hand listening to a PowerPoint sermon about a Christ they don't know. You will not be satisfied. 
criticize and sneer at you and say you're trying to be holier than the rest of us are. For God has not really given us Jesus Christ, he's given us all things. And because there isn't enough joy in the house of God, we need entertainment. Because entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. We're living in a time, as the prophet Malachi said, when those who fear the Lord are going to get together one more time and think on his name, and a book of remembrance will be written for them, and they will return, and they will know the difference between those who serve God and those who don't serve him. Folks, we've got to deal with sin. We've got to deal with things in life, you know, the divorcing and all these things. We have to do something about it. We have to face a holy God one day. There's a great trial coming, folks, for everyone. Praise God. He's going to deliver the true believer. I want you to change your message. I'm telling you now, the judgment is at the door. The handwriting is on the wall. The whole world is shaking, and you're amusing these people, even if you have to bury your theology, just bury it tonight and get right with God. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.